0: An investor's investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists. To see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today, on outside in. Our special guest is Renee man If Renee were an athlete, she'd be called the triple threat. She works at the cutting edge of organized labor public policy and finance, and her impact has been felt across all three. A former field organizer for the AFL-CIO, she is deputy director for the Service Employees International Union's strategic initiatives department, where she works with pension trustees who sit on 67 pension funds with collective assets under management of approximately a trillion dollars. In terms of public policy, she serves on the Biden-Harris transition team, focusing on the financial regulatory landscape. And she's previously served on the federal reserve bank of Chicago's advisory board on small business, agriculture, and labor.
0: Welcome Renee. That was amazing. You made me sound really great. (laughs) Well, you do good things long enough. You accomplish a lot. Um,
1: But let me ask you a question. What's your origin story? We find that interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are today?
0: Well, I grew up um in Northwest Indiana, um and in steel country. You know, everybody I knew was a was a steel worker or um a postal worker or a school teacher. I think in the heyday of unions. So I didn't know anybody who didn't have somebody in their family who was a union. I think my dad was a steel worker. That's how I got through college because I, you know, I got a scholarship <laughs> from them. Um I didn't know that people didn't even know what a union was until, you know, I was in college. Like, literally, I thought everybody, you know, knew what unions were. And, um, you know, tragically, my my dad um, had a, a, a neurological disorder that succumbed from us far too soon. Um, and I, I left school when he got, you know, really sick. And um, I ran into some community organizers who, you know, kind of asked me to sign some petitions and then they asked me to show up at some school board meeting. And so I became a, a community activist while, while going to school part-time and um, really found my way into community organizing uh, and then later into labor organizing and, you know, never thought my path would leave me here. And then I applied for this program that they had back in the... And the days of the AFL-CIO's transitory day um, called the AFL-CIO Organizing Institute. And um, was fortunate enough to go into what they called in a three-day kind of training. And the training I went to, I think, um, mostly all of the trainers were female organizers. And by this time, I think I had had my oldest son. um, wasn't married. um, And I was like, there's no way I can do this. Um, you know, being an organizer, like the, the, the lifestyle of an organizer. And my um, my life partner, who's now my husband, was like, we want to do it. We can We can make this work. And the women who were at that event, if it had not been for those women at that event, I probably would never have taken my first role as a, as a labor organizer. And they said, you can figure this out. You can do this. And so that's how I ended up working at the AFL-CIO after I completed that program. Um, worked for the AFL for a long time. Um, and jumping ahead, you know, to um coming to work at SCIU and doing the finance stuff, I had uh helped someone else get a job at SCIU. And then the person who I know from my AFL CIO day um had asked um if I had any other candidates. And I was like, Well, do you have any jobs in Chicago? <laughs> you know, kind of like on the on the on the down low, like ah. You know, I was working for a nonprofit by that time. I had left the AFL. And she said, well, are you coming to DC anytime soon? Let's have lunch. And so we did. And she took me to meet um, someone who's legendary in the, um, you know, when you talk about capital stewardship work, uh, Steve, Steve Albrecht. Um, and um, I'll never forget it. And she said, there's this job here. And I remember talking to him. About this position, and um, and I said, "Look, I'm not a finance person, Steve. I'm a I'm an organizer." And he said, "That's what I want. I want somebody who thinks about organizing money." Um, and I think, like you know, four months later, I was re- <laughs> working at I was working at, at CLU, Capital Stewardship, and I think the first six months I hated it. I was like, "I don't understand this world," but um, but you know, I. Again, my roots are, you know, working people, still workers and, you know, nursing home workers, my family. And I thought about the people that I knew that I came in contact all the time, people at church, you know, people, you know, in my kids' school. And I started thinking about how we build power because this money belongs to them, right? And I think that's grounded me, um, at, at least in my tenure as doing capital stewardship. And if you ask anybody on my team, they'll say that I constantly preach that. Like these people pay our dues and they they deserve excellence. They don't deserve mediocre. Um and I think about, you know, how do we use this money to build power for workers? Because so somewhere there's a billionaire who's thinking about how to um exploit them and you know and use our money to make money for themselves.
1: So I love the phrase organizing money. What are the day-to-day challenges that the trustees that you counseled, what what do they face?
0: So, first of all, I always tell my trustees, who most of them actually do have some finance background, that's why they're chosen, to, you know, by their locals to, to, to take on the trustee role. But I say that if you've negotiated the contract, if you set on a bargaining committee, you are more than equipped to be a pension fund trustee, right? Like, And I say that this system is designed to be um, amorphous and, and opaque because it's not in their interest for re- to have regular people understand that it's not that difficult. I actually try to destroy the myth that if you didn't go to, you know, Harvard, or you don't have a law degree, or an MBA, or, you know, some kind of fancy finance designation, that you're not um, equipped to, um, to be a trustee. Secondly, I always remind them that it's your money. You know, you're elected, and the reason the statutes are written that way is because it's workers' money, and you're you're bringing that perspective to the dialogue. The challenges are um, even the pension fund staff, you know, in the investment office, the consultant. Um, um, I think we use this term kind of intellectual bullying, where they um, tend to discount the opinions or um, try to intimidate the trustees when they present legitimate questions um about you know the direction of the investment strategy they have questions about the asset allocation they have questions about anything you know they try to diminish uh the questions or the uh, or the intellectual um Uh, premise for the questions from from our um, our labor trustees. Um, So that's a a big issue. I think the fact that, you know, folks are doing this after, you know, working as a janitor for eight hours a day or working as a school teacher for eight hours a day, they don't get extra time to prep for, you know, an investment committee meeting or, you know, um, you know, a diverse Manager prep meeting, or you know, a presentation by a private equity um, uh, fund who's seeking allocations from from the fund. So they don't have extra time; they don't necessarily get a day off, you know, to prepare for the meeting. They may get the day off to 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 be at the meeting, Um, but that's a real challenge um, because everybody else around that table probably does, and except for the labor trustees. Um, And I also just think that, um, you know, again, it's just a a different world, you know, and I know how I felt the first time I went to a conference and was surrounded by all these investment consultants and finance professionals, Um, myself as a woman, as a person of color. And, you know, I walk into these rooms often and, you know, I can count the people who look like me or kind of share my kind of background. And it can feel pretty isolating. Um, And so for someone who, again, you know, works as a janitor for 20-something years or, you know, is a kindergarten teacher or school teacher and who sits on a pension fund, it can be a pretty intimidating environment.
1: As we're recording this in April 2022, only about 6% of the U.S. private sector labor force is unionized. And it's down from a little over a third at Organized Labor's peak. But there seems to be signs of a resurgence. Um, An Amazon warehouse just voted to unionize, the first ever for that company. Uh, Various Starbucks shops have voted to unionize. President Biden has said his administration is pro-labor. And I think maybe most importantly, the combination of demographic change with the baby boomers Retiring and the pandemic induced increase in resignations means that workers are in short supply, which increases labor's bargaining power. And I was fascinated with this. A recent poll shows that 68% of Americans support unions, and that's the highest result in 50 years. Um, You know, others argue that the world's changed since labor's heyday. We have less manufacturing, we have work from home, and this is just a blip. So, What's your opinion? Are unions poised for resurgence? And if so, what, if any, will be the differences between unions of the future and unions of the past?
0: As I remember, again, you know, growing up in Northwest Indiana in the, you know, heyday and actually experiencing the downfall of manufacturing, which literally destroyed the communities, um, you know, in my area, you know, Gary, Indiana, East Chicago, Indiana, just went from thriving to literally busted. It seemed like it happened overnight. Um, So, you know, and it wasn't the union's fault, right? It was a change in the economy. It was, you know, a political change. It was just winds of change that happened. And quite frankly, a failure of the the labor movement to really take organizing um, seriously. So, so first of all, I think that the labor movement understands how necessary it is to organize, maybe in a way that that they didn't, you know, forty years ago. Certainly, I think they thought about it twenty-five years ago, you know. Um, And I think, you know, the the fact that workers now feel their power, um, is only going to help, you know, as we see in the, you know, with the Amazon workers, as we see with the Starbucks workers, right? That people know they have power and they're not afraid to to. To use it right, to flex it, to organize together. So I think that's an interesting phenomenon. Um, but you see, the, this is the economy that we're that we're in, right? It, it's 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 warehouse workers like Amazon workers. It's service sector workers like. Um, you know, like the baristas and the Rochelle workers at Starbucks, you know, it's the, you know, service workers like, you know, the McDonald's workers that, you know, SDIU has been working with um, on the Fight for 15. We see these kind of um, non-traditional uh union organizing or, you know, uh, collective bargaining situations occurring, you know, uh, Uber and Lyft workers who are, you know, attempting to organize in some um, locations around the country. Um, And I think that, you know, that's the perspective where the labor movement kind of has to, you know, adjust for the future. I think we'll see more organizing in tech for sure. And clearly a broad swath of organizing in the service industry Um, and, you know, gig and um, contingent workers as well and we have to figure out a mechanism that allows people to build power um in these situations where where the def- definition of an employer has, is not traditional and i think that's going to be a big struggle that i hope the labor movement is ready to to um to take on because i think that that is the primary challenge but i think the workers are ready
1: you know unions aren't monolithic and you worked for the SEIU you also were very active in social justice issues um One SEIU local is District 1199, which Dr. Martin Luther King famously called his favorite union because of its commitment to civil rights. And to give SEIU its credit, its then-president, David Sullivan, marched with Dr. King from Selma to Montgomery, even when other unions refused to have anything to do with that march. Um, Do you see your work on social justice as a continuation of that legacy, or is it something new that's 21st century or both? And what's been the reaction of other unions that may not be quite so progressive?
0: i like to think that SEIU has continued on the legacy of social justice throughout, um, certainly since I've been there. Um, but I really think that the, um, the critical moment for our organization has happened because of the senseless murders that we've seen of African-American men. So, you know, um, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown. Um, and George Floyd have all been kind of seminal moments in our union where we've had to take a moment and look at what's both happening externally and how it's impacting our members and then looking internally at how we're reacting and what this means for the future of our union and and the impact that we're going to have in terms of how we're looking at organizing, how we're looking at how the the country is being transformed in these moments. And, um, you know, SCIU has kind of made some commitments on racial justice. Uh, we formed a, a Center for Racial Justice um, at our convention a few years ago. And so I don't know that the commitment ever disappeared. I think we've just um uh formalized and and, and reinstitutionalized it um in a way um that recognizes that um that there's a lot of work that still has to be done. I can say that, um, at least in the areas that I work in, you know, on the finance and corporate accountability work, that um, we got a lot of questions from some other unions when we were on this path initially. Um, I questioned why they had questions, right? Because I see the demographics of their membership or the, you know, the demographics of the country, and I was like. This This kind of makes sense either way. There's a growing um, understanding um, first in the finance community around, you know, these issues of equity, um, justice, diversity, you know, as we've kind of collected more more data to come out. And I also think that there's, not that unions have ever been against any of this, because I don't believe that. I just think that they have, Try to more fully integrate it and be more vocal about their commitment to these issues of racial justice more recently.
1: One of the ways that that you did this is um, most recently um, there was a resolution that passed at Apple that you were involved with um, which called for a civil rights audit by Apple of Apple or by an independent that they would hire of Apple. First, can you explain what a civil rights audit is at a company and second, why it's needed?
0: Um, a civil rights audit, um, a racial equity audit, a resolutions that we filed at several companies, um, they really just ask the companies to examine their p- practices and policies um, and how they are impacted by um, civil rights um, laws, right? Um, how they talk to stakeholders about, you know, the impact of their, their company's business practices and operations, looking at it through a civil rights lens. And the only difference between the civil rights audit and the racial equity audit is the racial equity audit looks primarily at issues of race, <laughs> clearly. The civil rights audit really covers all protected, you know, um, classes under Title VII. So, um. For Apple, we thought it was really important because they um, paint themselves um, in this light as a very progressive, you know, technology company. They talk about, you know, all these avenues they have to engage their employees. Um, They come out with all of these products, but um, there's been a number of issues, you know, whether there's issues around surveillance, whether there's issues around, you know, you know, with the LGBTQ community, um, just a a lot of issues that Apple has had that they have not seemed to to be able to resolve. And um, as investors, we are concerned about the risk if they are not identifying these issues and taking steps to mitigate them. And we don't think that a company kind of holding a mirror up to themselves is the way that um, a huge corporation like Apple is going to be able to resolve these and mitigate risk for investors. And so having an independent third party look at these business practices and operations and look through the civil rights impact of these on you know, stakeholder community, you know, LGBTQ community, you know, whether they're experiencing, you know, ageism, you know, racial equity issues, um, having the third party person auditor, you know, talk to impacted community stakeholders, right? So they're talking to representatives from all these communities um, and getting their point of view. Um, I think it's really it really a, a concept of the civil rights audit, and then getting that information back to Apple. You know, Apple publishing that and sharing that with shareholders, and hopefully, um, you know, as Facebook, Airbnb, and Starbucks have done these, and they said it's been you know invaluable process for them. We think that Apple will find that. Um, Despite their initial reticence.
1: So it, you know, it is hard and it's unusual for a shareholder resolution to pass, especially at a company as large as Apple. Um, and this wasn't even close. Were, were you surprised that it passed so easily? So we
0: were optimistic that we would get a a significant goal. We were um shocked that it that it passed. And and when when my text messages started. You know, <laughs> blowing up like because I wasn't on the call. Um, I was, you know, on the meeting. Um, and I was like, "What's happening?" And it was like, "Apple." I was like, "Oh my god!" I I really was shocked. Cause, you know, we thought we'd get a really good vote. We we knew it. would be, you know, we thought we'd get you know thirty five percent or over. That I I had no expectation that we would get a majority. So that was. That was amazing. And I don't know if if you know this, but um, the next week, I believe, we got a majority at Maximus. We got 64% vote. So um, way to start a shareholder state in 2022 for us. But we are very excited about this. Um, um, And I think it just shows that investors do want this information. They do want companies to be proactive in mitigating the risk. Um, and they absolutely feel that, you know, having a third party independent auditor, you know, looking at the company is a functional way of achieving the results that and the information that investors want.
1: Let me focus on uh, the finance industry and, and our listenership in particular. And let me read you something you wrote in 2020 following the murder of George Floyd and the resultant protests. And he wrote, quote, Put simply, the U.S. has never had an economic model divorced from racial inequity and violence, even our core financial ideas and institutions from mortgages to bookkeeping, to the growth of Wall Street banks were intimately entwined with the slavery economy, the legacy of which drives the racial wealth gaps and criminal justice industrial complex that undergird the challenges facing so many communities of color today. Business as usual only reinforces our racially inequitable systems. Making real change will require conscious and comprehensive action, including a fundamental re-examination of corporate systems of behavior, end quote. So it's two years later. This was a challenge to the finance industry. How good a job are we in finance doing?
0: Maybe we're at a a C.
1: (laughs) Where were we? Maybe it's a question of progress. Oh, a we question. were, we Absolutely. were probably,
0: at, we were definitely at a D.
1: <laughs> okay. Um,
0: so, and I, and the only reason I say C is probably because of the steps of the, um, quite frankly, because we're, we're forced to reckon with some of this because of the, the administration's, you know, um, efforts, you know, the SEC rulemaking that's gonna, you know, probably force some additional disclosures. You know, the Biden administration has been very um, explicit in saying that they have a focus on on racial justice, on unions, on, you know, and and that's driven a lot of policy-related change or will continue to do so over, over the, the next, you know, two years, we hope. The, the NASDAQ rule, um, on board diversity, you know, so there's been some small change. I think one of the things that really frustrated me um, when I first started to do this work and in some ways still does, is that people told me that we can make that the finance move slow and change happens slow. And I I asked why? I said, why? Why does it move slow? And they said that that's just the way it it does because it's money. And I said, okay. Well, if it's workers' money, then why do we have to move slow? Because, you know, when I'm talking to an airport worker that's making, you know, $9 an hour, they don't have two years, you know, to wait for y'all to get it together so that they can make 12 like they don't have two years while you all are trying to figure out like, what do we do about private equity when their job is getting ready to be taken over by, you know, some private equity firm that could like take away whatever little bit they do have. Like we don't have that kind of time. These workers don't have that kind of time. Some things do take, you know, more time than others, but I also think that people were satisfied with moving at a snail's play um, because it really didn't have direct impact for them, right? Um, I, when we filed, you know, shareholder proposals on board diversity at Facebook and Amazon, you know, our little $3 billion at CIU Master Trust. And I remember when, you know, our team, we were sitting around talking about it and I was like, well, why aren't these big funds? Why haven't they done that? Why haven't they just like everybody's talking about it? Like there's like a gazillion articles about like diversity. Why haven't they just filed a resolution? And nobody could tell me why they hadn't done it. And I was like, okay, well, like, what's the worst that can happen, <laughs> you know, and we did it and we got results. And I just think that that's the kind of thing that like, if nothing else, I hope that people just can see now that like, whatever the, the, the process was before we don't, you know, but yes, we do engagement. Yes. We will write letters. Yes. We, we going to give the companies a chance, but. Like how many chances do they need? Cause the workers that we represent, you know, they don't give them chances. So like, I really don't care about like, you need three conversations to do something like, no, you're not getting these workers three conversations. So no, like we're not doing that anymore.
1: <laughs> so, so you're passionate about everything, but, but let me ask you a, a question. What's exciting you right now? What are you looking forward to over the next year?
0: um just getting out in the world again um I like to go to concerts and see live music so uh, right before the pandemic I had tickets to see Janet Jackson and the concert got canceled <laughs> um so I love to go to concerts I love live music so um so I'm looking forward to that I'm looking I really 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 want to go see um Bruno Mars and Silk Sonic, like that's the tour I'm waiting for tickets to go on sale for. So I'm really looking for that. I, if my family is around, that that could be a Mother's Day gift. Uh,
1: is that the type I, of music you listen to at home?
0: I actually listen to some of everything. I listen to a lot of um, R&B, a lot of gospel. Um, I'm not really a hip hop person unless it's like old school hip hop.
1: So who are some of your favorite artists?
0: Um, Bruno Mars, Sipsonic, Um, Jasmine Sullivan is one of my um favorite also. I like Taylor Swift. Don't don't shoot me. <laughs> I like Taylor Swift. Yeah, I think those are some of my, I guess some of my favorite artists right now, but I just like music in general.
1: Let's let's finish with a couple of very quick questions and mm-hmm. answers. How do you relax?
0: By either reading or listening to an audio book preferably by water. That's my thing. What are you reading right now? I just finished uh, a book about the American Indians and the uh, oil transfers in the West. And then I'm working on this one right now, which is of uh, Women in Salt by Gabriel Garcia.
1: If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be?
0: Ooh, I usually would say anywhere with my family, I'm I'm a beach person, Um, so I'm working my way through the Caribbean right now. Um, So I haven't been at Aruba or Curacao. So I'm working my way through those. But you know, if somebody like if money wasn't an object, I'd probably be like in the Maldives or somewhere, like you know, or maybe Hawaii.
1: Last question: If you could magically whisper into everyone in the world's ear, what would you tell them?
0: I would tell them to um, value the people that they love. Um, There's a song by Steve We Wonder that says these three words and it's, you know, I love you. And I just think that everybody needs to hear those three words. You can never say them enough. And that's what I would tell people. Tell the people that you care about, I love you. If I've learned nothing else during the pandemic, it's to value the people that, that you love, John. I mean, I think that the world would be a better place if we just sat back and remembered that.
1: Great advice. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukomnik and our special guest, Renee Manley. As you've heard, Renee is smart, savvy, indefatigable, and strategically impatient. Thanks, Renee.
0: (laughs) Thank you, John.
1: Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, or we'd love it if you'd leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.